Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What do a werewolf, a vampire, and a 12-year-old girl all have in common? They're all factors in the murders of two loving parents and their 8-year-old son. Sunday, April 23, 2006, dawned bright but freezing in Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada despite it being the middle of spring. The afternoon promised a semblance of warmth, so Gareth decided it was the perfect time to visit his best friend across the road. He hoped they could play together on the quiet street they shared as they had every day since winter ended. The boy he was looking for was eight-year-old Tyler Richardson. The Richardson family, Deborah, Mark, Tyler, and 12-year-old Jasmine, lived in a neat gray weatherboard home with a gabled roof and trimmed lawn, the perfect picture of a middle-class family. But on that spring day, what lay behind their front door was anything but picture-perfect. As Gareth approached the home, he noticed the blinds were still closed, and when he knocked, there was no answer. It was a Sunday, and the family would usually be back from church by then, and the car was parked in the driveway, so they were definitely home. He peeked inside the lounge room window, but seeing no movement, he decided to try around the back in the basement where Gareth and Tyler sometimes played. Looking into the room from the bright outdoors, it took a few moments for Gareth's eyes to adjust to the darkness. To his shock and disbelief, he saw what he thought were the outlines of two bodies lying on the floor, not moving and covered in blood. He raced back home to tell his mother what he thought he had seen. She was shocked and questioned if what he was saying was true. Her boy had been known to over-embellish details. Holding his hand, they crossed back over the street together so Gareth could show her the basement. And right there in front of her, she too could make out two blood-smeared bodies. She immediately called the police. What investigators discovered inside the walls of the Richardson home would shock Canada even to this day, 16 years later. This is Monsters. Police forced entry through the front door into an eerily calm Richardson home. They called out, but got no answer. They made their way downstairs to where Gareth and his mother said they had seen what they thought were bodies. As they walked into the gloomy basement, they saw two adults lying on the ground completely covered in blood, their eyes glazed over. Both people were clearly deceased. There was blood everywhere, on the floor, on the ceiling, and splattered up the walls. Despite their injuries, they were clearly identifiable as Mark and Deborah Richardson. They had been brutally murdered in their own basement, but their bodies weren't the only horror found in the Richardson home that day. Upstairs in his bedroom, they found what was left of eight-year-old Tyler. He too was covered in blood, just like his parents. He had a gash across his throat reaching from ear to ear and he was clearly deceased. 
By the time officers had completely searched the rest of the home, they had realized something was missing. Family photos lining the walls and mantelpiece in the home showed four Richardsons, not three. Twelve-year-old Jasmine was unaccounted for. Given what officers had seen inside, they were very concerned about her well-being. Her room was undisturbed, and there was no sign of a struggle outside of the areas where the bodies of the Richardsons had been found. The family vehicle was still in the driveway, so the offenders must have had their own mode of transportation. Based on the fact that the bodies were already cold and the blood around their bodies was thick and congealed, it appeared the Richardson family had been set up the previous night. Officers assumed that a person or persons had entered the home and killed Mark, Deborah, and Tyler. But what about Jasmine? Had she been taken, or had she been away from the home at the time, coincidentally avoiding the slaughter of her entire family? Two very important questions remained unanswered. Why the Richardsons, and where was Jasmine? Within hours of the discovery of her parents' bodies, police issued statements to the media saying they were very concerned about Jasmine and wanted to find her as soon as possible. While they didn't disclose many details, the suggestion was that they were worried she had been abducted. While they waited for a sighting of Jasmine from a member of the public, the investigation got underway. Every aspect of the Richardsons' lives leading up to the point of their murders was pulled apart. Family, friends, and known associates. Anyone with an axe to grind or a grudge against the family would be interviewed, but police never found any such person. It looked as though the Richardsons were exactly who they seemed to be, a tight-knit loving family. Well, except for one particular Richardson, 12-year-old Jasmine. The day after the murders, the tone of the statements asking for help finding Jasmine abruptly changed. Rather than concern for her well-being, police now stated they wanted to find a person of interest in the case. Again, not many details were given, but reading between the lines, it was clear that Jasmine had become the prime suspect in her family's murders. Due to Canadian laws, this change meant the media were no longer allowed to refer to her by her name due to her age. She became known only as J.R., because nobody could figure that out. The public couldn't get their heads around it. What could cause a 12-year-old to be involved in the brutal killing of her parents and 8-year-old brother? Perhaps, unsurprisingly, it all started with a boy. By all accounts, before 2006, Jasmine Richardson was an intelligent and caring girl. She attended a local Catholic school where she was an honor roll student, and her parents supported her to pursue her passions inside and outside of school. She was fairly quiet and shy and spent a lot of time with her family and close group of friends. There was nothing particularly exceptional about Jasmine's time as a child. She was raised in a loving and stable home with two devoted parents and a typical, annoying little brother. But as she reached her preteen years, things began to change for Jasmine. Looking at her social media accounts at the time, you could be forgiven for thinking she was like any other adolescent girl. Going through that awkward phase of figuring out who she was and what she was into. Her MySpace page was filled with pictures of her favorite bands, and her selfie photos were taken from a ridiculously high angle typical of the early 2000s. But sometime around the middle of 2005, the tone of her page started to change. Gone were the doe-eyed pictures of Jasmine with her long, dark hair and sweet smile. Now in her photos, she was seen wearing thick, dark eyeliner and black outfits complete with fishnets and torn fabric. Her musical taste had changed too. 
rather than the mainstream pop she had loved as a child. Now she posted about heavy metal tracks. Around this time, Jasmine began to label herself as a goth, and she grew further apart from her circle of friends. When she got her own computer, she signed up for various gothic-themed websites, one of which was VampireFreaks.com. Her username was Runaway Devil, and while she was only 11 at the time, her profile stated that she was 15 years old. Her profile tagline was, quote, Welcome to my tragic end. And she described herself as Wiccan, nocturnal, awkward, and insane. Her likes included dark poetry, criminal psychology, blood, kinky shit, and human anatomy. Jasmine used the chat rooms on the site to talk with others who were into the same goth community and music scene she was. Within weeks of signing up, she was talking with increasingly older men on the site. At home, Jasmine had become sullen and withdrawn, and she was no longer interested in spending time with family or her usual friends. She spent hours locked away in her bedroom, browsing the internet and chatting with strangers in various chat rooms. Her clothing got progressively more provocative, and her parents found themselves disciplining her more than ever before. Still, they allowed her some freedoms, and in early 2006, in what would become a most fateful occasion, they allowed her to attend a local punk rock concert. It was at this concert that Jasmine crossed paths with Jeremy Steinke. Jeremy was a 23-year-old who was into the punk and goth scene just like Jasmine. They got to talking, and despite the 11-year age gap, he pursued Jasmine and asked her to be his girlfriend. Jasmine was infatuated with Jeremy, and she agreed right away. Jasmine and Jeremy's lives and histories couldn't have been further apart. Jeremy was a high school dropout who lived in a trailer. His mother was an alcoholic who had had many different partners over the years, many of whom abused Jeremy as a child. He was also bullied throughout school, and by the time he was 13, he had considerable learning difficulties as well as a diagnosis of depression and hyperactivity. He was still a teenager the first time he tried to hang himself, but it wasn't his tumultuous childhood that was most unique about Jeremy. Over the ten years before he met Jasmine, Jeremy had developed a persona as a 300-year-old werewolf. He declared himself to be immortal and that he craved the taste of blood. He wore a small vial of blood around his neck, though whether human or animal, it's not known. Like Jasmine, he dressed in dark, ripped clothing and listened to goth music. It was this strange and unusual persona that drew Jasmine in. She wanted to feel older, to feel grown up and in charge. Being with Jeremy gave her that, and the fact that their relationship was forbidden made it even more alluring. Right from the beginning, Jeremy and Jasmine knew Mr. and Mrs. Richardson would never agree to their relationship, so they figured out a way to keep their romance a secret. In the age before cell phones were as common as they are now, they knew they couldn't use the landline phone for fear of Jasmine's parents finding out about them. Instead, the pair used the Vampire Freak site to keep in touch. Jeremy already had a profile under the username Soul Eater. His profile listed his interests as scarification, a form of self-mutilation, pain, kinky fetishes, blood, and razor blades. For a couple of weeks, their plan worked and they managed to avoid anyone finding out about them except friends who thought the couple's relationship was weird. But to Jasmine's great shame and annoyance, her parents had begun to monitor her online activity. 
when they discovered their 12-year-old daughter was having increasingly concerning conversations with random strangers on the internet, they grounded her and took away her computer. They asked her who Soul Eater was, and Jasmine finally came clean and told them about her boyfriend. Deborah and Mark were horrified to discover that Jeremy was 23 years old. As any parent would be, they were very concerned that Jeremy was taking advantage of their daughter, and while they had never met him, they knew nothing good could ever come of their relationship. They forbid Jasmine of having any contact with him, but they didn't leave it at that. They enrolled themselves and Jasmine into family counseling, hoping they could get her to see that Jeremy was no good for her. To their relief after just a few sessions, Jasmine appeared to be showing signs of returning to her normal happy self. When Jasmine offered a heartfelt promise that she would no longer chat with guys online or see Jeremy again, her parents agreed to return her computer. This was to be another fateful decision. Within days, they would be dead and Jasmine would be missing and implicated in their horrific and brutal murders. It was only then that the truth of Jasmine and Jeremy's relationship would come to light. The day that her family's slaughtered bodies were discovered, police began a desperate search for Jasmine. They called many of her friends in the hope that she had fled from the intruder which had killed her family and taken refuge with someone she trusted. But to their shock and ultimately their disgust, friends recalled seeing Jasmine just hours earlier, not long after the police suspected her parents and brother had been slaughtered. And Jasmine wasn't in a state of panic. She was elated. The night before, Jasmine had turned up at a house party with Jeremy. While there, the pair were heard bragging about their activities earlier that day. They boasted that they had killed Jasmine's parents, with Jeremy saying he, quote, gutted them like a fish. Jasmine's friends thought the pair were gross, and that the whole thing was some kind of sick joke. It was only when contacted by the police the following day that it dawned on them that what the pair had said was true. They had come to the party after killing Jasmine's whole family. Police also searched Jasmine's school locker where they found a stick figure drawing of a girl lighting a house on fire with her family inside and making a getaway in her boyfriend's truck. Based on this new information, the tone of the police statements to the media changed. It was also when a rescue mission became a manhunt. Jasmine and Jeremy were now wanted in connection with the bloody murder of two adults and one eight-year-old boy. By now, the parrot had ample time to flee, and police released photos of them in the hopes that a tip-off from a member of the public would lead them to where they were hiding. Their public appeal worked. The following day, the pair were spotted in the community of Leader, Saskatchewan, 81 miles or 130 kilometers away from where the murders had taken place. Investigators traveled to the area and found them kissing and cuddling under a blanket in the bed of a pickup truck. They were both arrested and brought in for questioning without incident. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. By now, autopsy results of the cause of death for the three victims had become available and they told a story of a brutal and gruesome attack. It appeared Deborah had died first. She was found with 12 stab wounds across her body. 
At least one of these wounds had pierced 12 centimeters into her chest, deep into her heart. She bled out on the basement floor. Mark was next. He was found to have sustained 24 stab wounds, including 9 in his back. He also bled out on the basement floor, just feet from his dying wife. Young Jacob was the last to go. He was in his room, dressed in his pajamas when he was stabbed five times, including a single, deep slash across his neck. He bled out in his own bed. After their arrests, investigators interviewed the pair separately and Jasmine and Jeremy couldn't have had more different stories to tell. Jasmine told police that she was desperately unhappy after her parents attempted to make her separate from Jeremy. She claimed he was the love of her life and it was only her parents that were keeping them apart. They were meant to be together. She told the police she came home and found her whole family had been murdered, but she wasn't there when it happened. She knew Jeremy was responsible because he had told her what he was planning to do. Jasmine believed the murder of her family was the ultimate act of love. She told officers she wanted to be with Jeremy so much that she was prepared to cover for him and run away. With her parents dead, no one could stop them from being together. She denied any involvement in the murders, but Jeremy had a vastly different story to tell. While he was in custody, he discussed what had happened with an undercover officer who was posing as a fellow prisoner in the same cell. He told the officer that the plan to murder Jasmine's family was purely her idea. He wasn't initially keen on the idea, but when her parents had taken her computer away and insisted that she not see him anymore, he knew they had to go. He agreed to be involved in her plot to eliminate her entire family. Jeremy admitted that he had killed Deborah and Mark, but that Jasmine was solely responsible for killing her little brother Jacob. In fact, she had begged to be the one to do it, even though Jeremy told the police he was more than happy to kill all three of the Richardsons. Hmm, how nice of him. The police needed to know who exactly was responsible for planning the murders. With Jeremy's covert comments caught on tape, they confronted Jasmine about Jacob's murder and her story quickly changed. Jasmine finally admitted that she had been the one to stab Jacob. Initially, she claimed she wanted to leave him out of the plan, but with her parents dying in the basement below them, she felt compelled to kill him in the moment because she didn't want to leave him as an orphan. Both Jasmine and Jeremy referred to VampireFreaks.com in their statements. The police decided to start their investigation of the pair by looking more closely at each of their profiles and the chat history between them. In the weeks since they met, they exchanged thousands of messages back and forth. It didn't take long to ascertain who had been the one to come up with the idea of killing Deborah and Mark. In one of Jasmine's earlier messages to Jeremy after her parents had attempted to cut off communications between the pair, Jasmine wrote, quote, I have this plan. It begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. Jeremy encouraged her ideation with his replies stating, quote, well, I love your plan, but we need to get a little more creative with, like, details and stuff. After Jasmine's computer was removed, Jeremy continued to send her messages saying, quote, I miss you more than killing people. Can we get together and kill people together? After another incident where the pair were unable to contact each other, he posted, quote, Their throats I want to slit. They will regret the shit they have done, especially when I see to it that they are gone. They shall pay for their insolence. Finally, there shall be silence. Their blood shall be payment. 
They also discussed what they would do after the family was dead, describing how they would run away to be together, finally getting to be the independent couple they desperately wanted to be. But Jeremy wasn't the only person Jasmine told about her plans to kill her family. In the wake of the murders, a number of friends came forward to say that Jasmine had told them she wanted her parents dead, but none of them believed she would actually do it. They thought Jasmine was just besotted with Jeremy and like any teenager who was told no, she wanted to rebel against her parents. No one could have imagined the once kind and loving Jasmine would ever be capable of such horror. With enough evidence to show Jasmine had initiated the plot to kill her parents and Jeremy was responsible for killing Deborah and Mark, they were both charged with three counts of murder. Throughout their interviews and imprisonment, the pair didn't express any remorse or regret about the murders. They wrote letters to each other from their cells bragging about the killings and calling themselves legends and immortal. In one letter, Jeremy asked Jasmine to marry him. She delightedly agreed. With the charges laid, officers wanted to know exactly how the murders had unfolded in the Richardson home on that Saturday night. Jeremy told them that earlier in the day he had watched his favorite movie, Natural Born Killers, with friends at his house. The movie is loosely based on real-life teenage killers Charles Starkweather and his girlfriend Carol Ann Fugit, who went on a bloody murder spree and ended up brutally killing nine people. Jeremy referred to the movie as a love story. After watching the movie, Jeremy spoke to Jasmine and they decided they wanted to be just like the couple in the film. They agreed there was no time like the present to get started. Mark and Deborah had to go. Jeremy told officers he got drunk before putting on a neoprene mask to disguise his face. Jasmine led him into the Richardson's home, directly into the basement. Deborah was awakened by the noise and came to investigate. Jeremy was waiting for her and he stabbed Deborah repeatedly. She desperately tried to fight back and screamed out in pain and fear. Mark rushed downstairs and tried to stop the attack and protect his wife. He wielded a screwdriver against Jeremy, but he was unable to land any blows. Jeremy was unrelenting and he didn't stop until he had stabbed Mark 24 times on his front and back and the man was dead. Meanwhile, Jasmine was upstairs stabbing her little brother in his bed. Once Jeremy was done with her parents, he headed upstairs where he found Jasmine with Jacob. But the boy was still alive, so Jeremy helped her out by slashing his throat. After killing the family, Jeremy went home and washed the blood off of himself while Jasmine caught a cab to a restaurant where they met up later. Together, they attended the party with friends where they celebrated the deaths of Jasmine's family. They were picked up by a friend who drove them to Saskatchewan where they were found by police the following day. In June of 2007, just one year after the slayings, Jasmine stood trial on three counts of murder. She pleaded not guilty on the stand and claimed she was in a zombie-like state while Jeremy slaughtered her parents. She claimed that her comments about killing her parents were purely hypothetical and she never intended to go through with it. She said it was Jeremy that pressured her to take the plan from an idea to reality. When asked directly about her little brother, she stated that he had begged for his life as she stabbed him to death. She remembers his throat gurgling as she wounded him, with Jeremy coming into the room and slitting his throat to end his life. Asked why she had concocted the plan to kill her family, Jasmine stated, quote, I loved him so much, I thought it would bring us closer together. 
Jasmine Richardson was found guilty of all charges and sentenced to 10 years in jail. Under Canada's Youth Criminal Justice Act, no person under 14 years old could be sentenced to more than 10 years. Her sentence was considered to be focused primarily on her rehabilitation rather than imprisonment. It included four years in a psychiatric facility, during which time Jasmine was diagnosed with conduct disorder and oppositional defiant disorder. Conduct disorders are usually diagnosed in children and are characterized by a lack of regard for others. Children with this diagnosis don't like to follow rules and often behave in socially unacceptable ways. Sometimes, this leads to hostility and physically violent behavior. Oppositional Defiant Disorder is also mostly diagnosed during childhood and refers to children who are uncooperative, defiant, and hostile towards others, particularly their parents or authority figures. In the later years of her sentence, Jasmine was given conditional community supervision during which time she took classes at Mount Royal University in Calgary, Alberta. It is unknown what subject she studied. In 2008, Jeremy's trial began on three counts of first-degree murder. His defense asked that the charges be reduced to manslaughter, claiming that Jeremy was under the influence of drugs at the time of the slayings and that he had snapped that day. They also deflected blame onto Jasmine, who by then had been found guilty of the killings. They claimed Jeremy was seduced by Jasmine into carrying out the murders and that he was love-struck and willing to do anything to please the 12-year-old. Some of his friends testified that in the weeks before the murders, Jeremy had asked if anyone could help him get rid of Mark and Deborah because Jasmine would break up with him if he didn't. He also denied being the one who had slashed Jacob's throat, stating that Jasmine had done it while he watched from the bedroom doorway. He also claimed that when he went to the house that day, he wasn't planning on killing the family and that he was just waiting in the basement for Jasmine to come down. He was surprised by Deborah's arrival, and that's when he attacked her. In contrast to his claim, when asked why he had killed the Richardsons, he stated, quote, When you found your soulmate, you do anything for them. I did anything. Throughout the trial, Jeremy remained unemotional and subdued. That was until his mother took the stand in his defense. Jacqueline May, who suffered from a terminal lung disease, testified that her son was troubled even as a child due to the abuse he suffered at the hands of her various partners. She recalled him being hit with a belt and a stick and being dragged around by his ears. She stated, quote, Jeremy's dad started using the belt on him around two. He would sometimes pick Jeremy up by the ears and carry him to his room, or grab him by the ears and drag him to his room. She also revealed how he would tell her that he wished he wasn't alive anymore. During his mother's testimony, Jeremy wept. She was the only person called in Jeremy's defense. When asked why he had changed his story since the undercover officer had first captured his confession, Jeremy claimed he was trying to be macho and fit in with another criminal, but his childhood trauma and repeated excuses for changing his story were not enough to excuse Jeremy from his actions. He was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder and received a sentence of three concurrent life sentences. The earliest he can apply for parole is after 25 years, or the year 2033. While in custody, he changed his name to Jackson May. One of Jeremy's friends, Casey Lancaster, was also charged with being an accessory to murder for driving Jeremy and Jasmine away from the scene of the murder and later disposing of evidence of the crime. 
The crimes shocked Canada, given the age of Jasmine and the brutality with which her family were slaughtered. Some of the officers involved in the discovery of the bodies continue to receive counseling to this day after the trauma of what they witnessed inside the Richardson home. In 2016, Jasmine was released without any further conditions after serving her full sentence. Announcing her absolute freedom, Queen's Bench Justice Scott Brooker told her, quote, I think your parents and brother would be proud of you. Clearly you cannot undo the past. You can only live each day with the knowledge you can control how you behave and what you do each day. Jasmine Richardson now lives in hiding at an undisclosed location in Canada. Her name still cannot be published in Canada due to her age at the time of the murders. She remains the youngest convicted killer of multiple persons in Canada's history. She has never expressed remorse for the killing of her family, nor has she apologized. The Richardson's murders have been the subject of much fascination since Jasmine's conviction. From being covered by crime and investigation show Deadly Women to the book Runaway Devil, Jasmine's story has captivated audiences with viewers desperate to understand how a 12-year-old girl transformed from naive and sweet to a crazed killer. It seems the combination of a self-proclaimed werewolf, a vampire chat room, and a 12-year-old goth is the perfect recipe for a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on. Hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.